Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Orthopedic Surgery Podcast, a curated series of interviews and discussions highlighting the three shields of orthopedic surgery at Mayo Clinic, clinical practice, research, and education. Welcome back to the Mayo Clinic Orthopedic Surgery Podcast. I'm really excited today to have uh, Dr. Aaron Critch, a professor of orthopedic surgery with us here at Mayo Clinic. He's also the chair of the Division of Sports Medicine at Mayo Clinic and head head team physician for the Minnesota Timberwolves. He deals a lot with uh, knee injuries and meniscus surgery, and we've got him joined today to introduce us and update us on some of the literature around meniscus and how we're treating that uh, in present day. Thanks for joining, Aaron. Thanks for having me, John. So as, as you talk to people, I'm, a, I'm obviously a shoulder surgeon and know, know less and less about knee over time, but you hear a lot of people who have meniscal injuries, meniscal surgery. Uh, can you, in general, talk about the spectrum of meniscal symptoms and pathology and presentation in your office? Yeah, so I think, you know, meniscus, um, acute injuries in, in young patients, I think, uh, and athletes are relatively straightforward. Um, it's kind of that middle ground, you know, middle-aged patient where I think um, you really have to spend some time. And the way I think about meniscus symptoms, I think about meniscus positive symptoms and meniscus negative symptoms. And what do I mean by that? Well, positive symptoms are actually symptoms caused by the by the tear itself. So these would be mechanical symptoms, you know, classically catching or locking. Uh, but also sometimes uh, we can see fragments that give sharp pain as well. So I would consider this uh, in the category of meniscus positive. Meniscus negative, um, I would classify symptoms as the meniscus is not functioning. So if you have an extruded meniscus, if you have, you know, a meniscus that has a lot of degeneration, loss of collagen, patients will actually have symptoms from loss of meniscal function, um, often similar to overload or arthritis type of symptoms. And I think that's very important because um, a lot of these situations were faced with um, the decision, can we help them with a knee scope or not? So I think patients that have symptoms from the meniscus or meniscus positive symptoms, those are typically knees that respond uh, to a knee scope uh, for the meniscus. And those that have lost meniscus function, I don't think we're going to make them any better by removing more meniscus tissue. Um, an example would be for, for example, like a root tear or a radial tear. They're not having meniscus function because of loss of hoop stress. If we go and remove more meniscus tissue, uh, we shouldn't expect the patient to improve following that surgery. That's great. And, and uh, nice differentiation there and uh, between those two. How, uh, what, what would a, I, I would assume, although uh, I'm not living this life, uh, but I would assume that one of the more common things is the, let's say the middle age uh, person with a little bit of early arthritis in the knee. And um, what are some of the uh, stereotypical symptoms for meniscus positive or physical exam findings for somebody that you think, or, or let's say meniscus positive patients who you think would benefit from a knee, a knee scope and a simple debridement? Yeah. So I think a good history uh, really plays an important role here. Um, you know, are they having, you know, really kind of episodic pain that's positionally related I think that can be referable to the meniscus, more, you know, global pain, um, pain with standing, pain with walking, probably more, you know, due to overload and arthritis. I think um, on your exam, I think everyone's familiar with, you know, kind of classical exam maneuvers. I think if a patient 
gives you a history of mechanical symptoms. You really have to spend some time in trying to reproduce those symptoms on exam. Sometimes they'll give you mechanical uh, history that's really just a subpatellar click, you know, for example. And then I really spend a lot of time uh, studying the MRI. You really need to truly understand the tear type and the tear pattern. Um, you know, sometimes it's easy to miss a displaced fragment into the tibial gutter, into the ephemeral recess, into the post-remedial compartment. Uh, so really spending some time to correlate the imaging with the patient's symptoms, I think can give you a clear uh, or a more clear picture of if you can help them with a knee arthroscopy. Got it. And, and, uh, in your hands, does everybody need to fail an injection or what's the role of a, of a steroid injection in those, let's say, meniscus positive uh, patients who may be the middle-aged uh, athletes or former athletes? Yeah, it's a great question. There's been a lot of research done. Um, there's been the Fidelity study, the Meteor study. Um, and these were all studies that kind of randomized degenerative tears to, you know, injection and therapy uh, versus a debridement. And, you know, largely when you look at all comers, um, you don't see a lot of difference in outcome. So it's really just about what you said, targeting those patients that you can help and, and teasing those patients out. Um, so, you know, if I have a patient that has true mechanical symptoms or, you know, sharp pain with twisting from a displaced fragment, um, you know, an injection and therapy, there's, there's no harm in that, um, you know, setting. It won't burn any bridges, but I think it's unlikely to help them. Um, I think those are patients probably lean a little bit more towards surgery early on. And then, you know, on the, on the contrary, you know, if you have a patient that presents to you and just because they failed an injection and therapy doesn't necessarily mean that they're a candidate for knee arthroscopy. Um, there's just, you know, some tear types that just don't respond well. Um, you know, if you see arthritis in the, in the knee, if you're seeing bone edema and overload, um, you know, they probably won't do well with or without um, you know, a knee scope and, and different modalities. So those are patients you have to spend a little bit more time and educate them about what's really going on with the knee. Sure. That makes sense. And, uh, while, the, while those are common, on, um, I think it's thought it's important to be thoughtful about that and, uh, not just rush off to the operating room with each one. So on the other end of the spectrum is the young athlete, let's say with a uh, meniscal injury, what's typical presentation, uh, imaging findings, and um, is it different between medial and lateral meniscal tears uh, in your practice? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, we really in the young knee have to differentiate between the isolated tear that's a meniscus injury in a stable knee uh, versus meniscus tear at the time of ACL surgery. And uh, by far the most common is with an ACL injury that we see. When you look at those in isolation, you know, you ask medial versus lateral. Um, if you're in the lateral meniscus, oftentimes we'll see a pre-existing like discoid meniscus, for example. So you really have to scrutinize that because that's one you might treat a little bit differently um, than a normal, you know, lateral meniscus tear. Um, I think lateral versus medial as well, we're a little bit more aggressive in terms of trying to save the meniscus or repair the meniscus because we know that those knees can get into trouble, you know, quicker in a shorter period of time without that lateral meniscus. Got it. And are, do most young athletes with meniscal injuries end up with a locked knee or uh, is it uh, just an effusion or um, how often do you see locked, uh, locked knees or flip, flip meniscus? You certainly uh, uh, can see that. Uh, I think it's more common. Um, I think it's more common in wrestlers. Um, wrestlers have a really hard time with meniscus <laughs> tears. I think 
anytime you're trying to lift an opponent and your body weight in a hyperflex twisted knee, um, you know, you're asking to, to injure the meniscus. Um, so we certainly see that, um, if, you know, if you see any effusion in a young knee, that is not normal. Uh, you should do a careful exam and I would have a very low threshold to get an MRI in that setting, take a closer look. Got it. And, uh, how about technical tips or pearls for when you're considering meniscal repair or even, um, also maybe introduce us to some of the thoughts about which ones would be repairable versus which ones should be debrided. Yeah. Uh, I think, over time, uh, we are repairing more uh, meniscal tears. Uh, that's clear. I think we have better techniques. I think we have a better understanding of what techniques work. Um, we're really starting to get in the biologics, I think, which is interesting. Um, when I talk to patients, it's important that you know you really have um, a thorough discussion because some of these tears, you just don't know if they're repairable or not till you get in there. And, um, kind of a phrase that I like to use with athletes is I don't get to decide, you don't get to decide, but the meniscus decides at the time of surgery, whether or not it's a candidate for repair. Um, and you know, it's really a a tough discussion sometimes because these athletes, you're talking to them about, could it be six weeks before you return to sport in a meniscectomy situation, or is it six months in a repair situation? Mm -hmm. So you really have to kind of have that discussion up front and build their trust. And so they, you really trust you making that decision interoperatively. Um, You asked about technical pearls um, for meniscus tears. Um, I like to talk about the ABCs um, that are critically important for repairing the meniscus. So A is an anatomic reduction. I think we underestimate this importance. Obviously, um, in fracture surgery, we always talk about anatomic reduction, at least with direct fixation techniques. It's the same in the meniscus. If you have a malreduced meniscus, it's just not going to heal over time. Uh, B is biologic preparation. So you have to spend some time really preparing that tear site rasping the synovium. Um, there's clear data that shows uh, marrow venting is a good adjunct for an isolated tear. There's also good data to support PRP uh, for isolated repairs as well. So those without an ACL reconstruction. And then C um, is circumferential compression. So it doesn't really matter. Literature really hasn't borne out all inside, inside out, um, one over the other. Uh, So I think you have to have a full toolbox of options, but whatever you use, you really have to get circumferential compression of the tear site. So you can't just put sutures on top of the tear. You have to put top and bottom, for example, like a bucket handle tear. If you get any synovial fluid into the tear site, it's just not going to heal or it's going to partially healed with kind of fibrovascular scar tissue. So again, ABCs, anatomic reduction, uh, biologic preparation, circumferential compression. And I think we're seeing pretty good success rates in the 80 to 90% range with these tears. That's great. Tell me more about marrow venting. I haven't heard much about that. Where, where, where do you do? I'm assuming that's in patients who don't have an ACL rupture, who you're uh, drilling bone tunnels, but how exactly do you do, do that and where? Yeah. So um, basically uh, at the notch, uh, you're taking a microfracture all most commonly and you're basically making marrow perforations and you want to see efflux of marrow elements into the joint. Um, there's been good preclinical uh, caprine data actually with higher healing rates. And then uh, there's been several clinical papers now published that show when you perform marrow venting, you do have a higher healing rate. So perhaps, you know, we've always historically um, demonstrated that 
tears heal better at the time of ACL reconstruction. Perhaps it is the efflux of, you know, marrow elements from the bone tunnels. So we've tried to recreate that with the marrow venting that seems to be uh, working well in some cases. And it, uh, my understanding is a lot of the techniques and you, you sort of mentioned it, but a lot of the techniques for quote unquote, all inside or arthroscopic only uh, techniques have evolved. Um, is there still a role for inside out techniques uh, for meniscal repair? And is it more medial, lateral, or just uh, based on location or size? Uh, how do you make that choice? Yeah, so it's a little bit of everything. Um, I would say in general, um, smaller tears confined to the posterior horn, which still are the majority of repairable tears, um, really an all inside technique um, is efficient. It's relatively safe um, and very effective. When you start having larger tears that go into multiple zones of the meniscus, so a posterior tear that now extends into the body, such as like a bucket handle tear, um, it's really hard to get a nice circumferential repair uh, from an all-inside technique, or you'd have to use five or six all-inside devices, which is very expensive. So in those cases, uh, an inside-out repair works very well. What I like about inside-out repair is it, uh, you know, you can get that anatomic reduction, reduction of a complex tear pattern. Um, also, the perforations of the meniscus are very, very small compared to all inside device. So if you have a large tear where you think you're going to have to put 10 or 12 uh, fixation points in, inside out makes sense for a cost standpoint, but also we're not creating a lot of stress risers in the meniscus tissue. That's great. And my understanding uh, historically was that, that there was a lot of concern about the longevity or the healing rate of these tears, but you indicated a higher uh, rate of healing, 80 or 90%. What's current literature about healing rates and um, is it zone dependent or is it, uh, I'm sure it is, or age dependent? What are the big factors that drive if the meniscus is going to be able to heal or not? Yeah, so I think um, kind of a, a few questions rolled in there. Um, so one is, you know, how do we define success? And, you know, certainly objectively have to define success as re-tear, repeat surgery. Um, but, you know, if you have, let's say, a 15-year-old wrestler that here is a very significant tear of the lateral meniscus, you perform a complex repair, if they are able to continue to play their sport and then five or six years down the road, re-tear that meniscus, and let's say at that point in time, you have to remove some of that meniscus tissue, clearly that's defined as failure. But if you think about it, um, that can also be considered a success because that's six years that that athlete was able to play their sport. That six years, the cartilage didn't see increased loads. Um, so I think it really goes back to that in front or upfront discussion with the patient in the office and really setting expectations. Now, in terms of, um, you know, tear types and things, uh, really the vertical longitudinal tear, bucket handle tear is kind of our standard. Um, we've compared different tear types that we're now fixing, uh, such as radial tears, uh, such as horizontal cleavage tears. And we're seeing, seeing that that success rate is about the same, that healing is about the same. Um, so it's very interesting. I think we're understanding that, you know, tears are healing that we didn't expect to previously. Um, and I think it's just better recognition, better techniques, um, you know, better buy-in of the patients for the rehabilitation uh, and hopefully better biologics as time goes on. That's great. Let's, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, uh, that's a nice summary of that and um, disease and young patients. Can you tell me a little something you introduced before about 
these meniscal root tears, it sounds like it's something that's really been evolving rapidly. And I know you've done a lot of work in this area in your practice in terms of uh, treating some of these patients who I think we thought were uh, doomed, doomed for failure years ago. Can you talk about that pathology, how you identify it, and then how you make decisions about surgery? Well, it's amazing how common it is. And it's something that, you know, really in this country uh, wasn't even recognized until 2008. So it's, it's a brief modern history, you know, of just a little over 10 years. Um, And I think the typical presentation when we look at them, so on the lateral side, those tend to be traumatic young patients with ACLs. The ones that we're talking about now are the medial degenerative ones. And they tend to be in middle-aged uh, patients. Uh, it's amazing sometimes uh, how seemingly small their injury will be. It'll be getting up off a low chair, stepping off a curb, you know, something very low trauma. They'll feel a pop. And then in comparison to other meniscus tears, these really have um, an amazing amount of pain uh, associated with it. And I think it's really overload of that medial compartment, um, we know that risk factors for patients that do more poorly uh, with any kind of treatment with these root tears are patients that are heavier, that have a little varus malalignment. Females actually do a little bit worse. Maybe that's because of the osteopenia of the medial tibial plateau uh, compared to males. And then the farther the meniscus is extruded or out of the joint, these are all risk factors for doing um, you know, worse with any type of treatment for them. And um, can you usually tell based on the x-ray or presentation uh, to jump right to an MRI or um, is it, uh, do most of your patients maybe come with an MRI already and, and, and you've identified it? How, what's your threshold for getting an MRI for that early medial knee pain patient? Yeah, I would say a good set of x-rays, a good history and a good physical are, you know, first and foremost, very important. Um, but if you have someone that has a maintained joint space, has, you know, the acute onset of pain and pain, you know, specifically referred to that compartment, that to me is an indication for an MRI. Um, now, MRIs are interesting. Um, you know, we used to miss these tears a lot. I think on the medial side, we're very good at picking them up on MRI. Uh, we know specific signs to look for, like extrusion, like the ghost sign, uh, like truncation of the posterior horn. But on the lateral side, they remain very difficult. So we published a study that, you um, you know, even looking in retrospect, we missed two thirds of them, um, uh, you know, on an MRI. And that's just because of the meniscal femoral ligament and the anatomy and such, they're just not as easy to pick up as the medial side. One of the things that I, that you mentioned, but I know is important to you and in our practice here is talking about alignment. How, how do you make decisions about in, in these patients, if and when to add an osteotomy to, to change your alignment in association with a procedure like this? Yeah, I mean, in general, when you see, um, you know, five degrees of malalignment, you have to start thinking about it, I think. Uh, less than that, probably not. Um, and then it, 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 it becomes a discussion. Um, and the discussion points of consideration are certainly the rehabilitation from the osteotomy, certainly thinking about future surgeries, uh, such as a revision to arthroplasty, and then looking at the overall, you know, health of the joint, health of the compartment, health of the patient, uh, to come to that decision. Um, so it is, it is tricky in some cases and challenging because I think there are some knees that maybe could benefit from an osteotomy, but the patients just, I think really would have a difficult time getting through the rehabilitation. So I think it's really comes down to that shared decision-making with the patient. 
Perfect. And what, what's your current technique in terms of, cause I know these techniques have, if, if the, if, if we had discovered it in 2008 or really started treating it, I'm assuming the techniques have evolved rapidly over a relatively short period of time. What's your current uh, technique or does it vary based on patient or, or, or medial lateral uh, location? Yeah. So we've, um, you know, published a lot in the transtibial technique um, that, you know, that's been around for about 10 years. I would say, what's improved is the instrumentation. Uh, so, you know, I think um, partnering with industry, they've actually really helped us, um, I think, make this a more efficient, consistent anatomic operation, which has been good. Um, now, when we looked up our results of the transtibial repairs, we saw 98% healing, so they can heal at a high rate. The problem was we saw persistent extrusion in a lot of these uh, meniscal mm -hmm. tears. And although patients you know, had improvement in clinical symptoms. The question is, does an extruded meniscus, is that really counterprotective over the long term? So something we've changed over the last six months is we're now centralizing the meniscus. So we're really trying to address the extrusion and the root tear. Um, there was a theory before that we used to think, okay, patients develop this root tear. Now the meniscus would extrude and they would get this overload. Uh, we recently looked at a group of 21 patients that actually had pain, they had extrusion, and then on serial MRIs actually developed a root tear. Hmm. So when we're seeing these seemingly minor, you know, I got up off the couch, I felt a pop. Maybe our thought process now is that this is an extruded meniscus that puts all the stress at the root. Now they're having the root event kind of as the final uh, part of the cascade. You're getting an MRI um, and you're already seeing all of these, you know, chronic changes. So I think now we're trying to address the extrusion, bring the meniscus back into the compartment and repair the root. And we're looking carefully at those patients uh, now to see, you know, um, I think healing rates will be just as good. But the question is, do we uh, maintain that meniscus in its anatomic position and, and, and therefore its function better? Great. Do you see anything else coming down the pike in terms of big changes in this field over the next few years? Is it a place where we're going to see uh, dramatic uh, increases in biologics or stem cells or, um, or uh, uh, techniques that you see coming in the near future? Yeah, I think, you know, to me, it's always, you know, why are these tears happening? Um, we see the extrusion, but we want to take it one step farther back and ask, why does that meniscus extrude? Um, and I think a lot of it is, is probably due to aging of the meniscus, um, you know, um, increase in collagen degeneration, um, you know, lack of, you know, collagen production by meniscal cells. So I think we're going to see how do you, you know, try to reverse some of these aging effects on the meniscus. Um, we're focusing on how to do that in our meniscus transplants currently. You know, how do we biologically enhance these allografts? Um, and I think some of that will carry over to the native meniscus as well. Beautiful. That's really helpful. We've sort of taken a um, broad view of lots of different meniscal pathology. I'll try and uh, re, I'll try and summarize it from a shoulder surgeon's perspective, and then you can correct me where I made it wrong and, any, and leave it, leave, leave us with any uh, parting thoughts. But it sure sounds like uh, certainly treatment of meniscal injuries, particularly in the young, has gotten substantially more successful. And therefore, it seems like we're maybe a little bit more. Um, proactive in terms of proceeding with procedures, particularly in the young athlete, uh, but also in the meniscal root uh, tear with extrusion in the, in the older or aging athlete. It sounds like 
Careful history and physical exam is critical, just like all of orthopedic surgery. Unfortunately, we still do have to lay hands on our patient and talk to them and make decisions about uh, exactly what to do, but that that can be helpful in terms of the meniscus positive patients and proceeding with the, with an um, arthroscopic debridement. In terms of the techniques, you talked about the ABC anatomic uh, reduction biologics and then uh, circumferential compression. And certainly it sounds like these techniques have gotten um, well, while our techniques have gotten better, it sure sounds like you need to have a, a pretty focused uh, specialization to get these right in terms of the size and recognition and, and um, getting the repairs right. And when you do that, it sounds like the rate of healing is, is substantially better. So uh, it sounds like there's room for optimism in terms of the world of meniscus in, in current days and uh, even room for it to continue to get better and better. Any other thoughts that you'd like to add for our listeners today? Oh, that's a hundred percent right on. Uh, we, you know, try to preserve the meniscus. I think as the meniscus goes, so goes the knee and we really recognize the importance and it's been a fun time to be um, active in meniscus surgery. Uh, we just have a lot more options than we, than we used to. Beautiful. Thanks so much for joining us today, Aaron. Always a pleasure. Thanks, John.